just real quickly, Night to Shine, we are four and a half weeks out uh, from Night to Shine. I just want to ask you to be praying specifically for that night. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. We uh, have hit the number we've needed for buddies. And so my thanks to all of you who signed up for that. And uh, we're going to start physical therapy for some of you who need it to get, to get you uh, ready for that, some athletic training ahead of time. But uh, we have pretty much hit that number. So thank you for that. There's still areas in which to serve if you want to be a part of the night because it is so transformational. Uh, and many of you know that who've participated. It's just transformational. Here, here's an event that we started and started being a part of to, uh, to give to other people. We realize as we give to them, it comes back to us over and over again. A couple of things you can do that don't take a lot of work. You can sign up to be paparazzi, which means you come home, you shout and scream for two hours, and then go home. I mean, you can do that at home. Why not come here and do that? And, uh, and then head home. One of, the key, one of the key areas we can always use help with, and I just want to say, for those of you who sign up for this very sincerely. These are the unsung heroes. And that is when the whole night's done. So, you know, 9, 9, 9.30 at night, when the whole night is done, there's a group of people that walk in for the first time. They've been waiting all day to come just to help us clean up and tear down at 9 or 9.30 at night. They're there for three, four hours while we have to get everything back ready, of course, because you know, church is coming on Sunday. Uh, that's a, our, that team is a critical team. Uh, even if you can't do anything else uh, time-wise, if you can come and be a part of that, sign up for that. And uh, our thanks as we look forward uh, to this uh, weekend coming and to that night coming. It's a profound night. Uh, for, those who, for those who are guests, it's profound for them, but profound for us. So be in prayer for that night. <clears throat> My thanks. Many of you have called me already said, hey, pray for your cold. Your cold. How's it going? It's been, it's good. I don't think we have anything to worry about with my cough, except for it's gone into my ear where I'm now completely plugged ear, which I say that because I tend to shout when I begin to talk. Uh, if you've been in our house this week, it's been just a blast to be a part of it. Um, I can't hear, and so I, I keep saying to Diane, what? And then when she says it again, then I shout back, I heard you! And, you know, after a while, she's, would you stop yelling at me? And I'm just thinking, would you speak up? It's been a great week. It's so good to be in church and, uh, and to, uh, to just uh, worship, worship together. This morning, I want to preach a sermon that I preached. And if my notes are correctly, I, I preached this sermon, I think, 12 or 13 years ago. I prompted to preach this. I don't, you know, often do this. I'll do it sometimes. I don't typically re-preach a sermon, but prompted to do it after comments that I received last week from a very specific thing that I said in my sermon. And what's interesting, I had one specific line that I said last week. It wasn't even my notes uh, as such in this way, but I made the comment early in the sermon, and that has had an effect on people. I've had numbers of folks talk to me. If one person comes after a sermon and says, hey, I heard you say this, that's one thing. Two people, okay. But four is like significant in a, in a, in a setting like this when they identify the same thing. The thing that I said uh, last week that has kind of captured some attention from folks is this statement. We were talking about new. And I made the statement last week that God loves new. He loves the idea of new. New year, new you, new beginning. And I made this statement. I said that God loves the idea of new. He's the creator of the idea of new. And then I said this, I, I, these words. I said, some of you need to hear this. Given your past, given some of the things that you've carried, I said these words. Do you know that when God sees you, he sees the new you? He doesn't see the old you. He sees the new you. He sees the new that you can become. 
He, are, he sees what you can be. He sees that new you. He's not looking at the past. He's seeing at the new you. And numbers of people that has resonated with, just an encouragement. So this morning, and so I've been thinking about a message that I preached, went back and found it. And I want to preach this message this morning specifically to be an encouragement to you. Um, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that the truth of the sermon would encourage you. If, you're, if you are a new follower of Jesus, or perhaps not yet a follower, I also want to use it to get you to understand what happens when you give your life to Jesus Christ. Exactly what takes place, and how God then sees you when you've given your life to Jesus Christ. Now, as I preach it, some of you might go, oh, I remember that. Please know, I hope that you remember it. I had a fr- talked to a friend at one point who said that he would reuse messages, and he said, I always try to disguise them. And I always thought, well, that's kind of funny. If you're going to go to the work of disguising, I mean, why go to the work of disguising? I hope that you recognize it, and I hope that is an encouragement to you this morning. I want to look at an encounter that Jesus had with two very, very different people. Two people who could not have been more different in just about every way, shape, and form. Both people were untouchable. One, untouchable because of unrighteousness, because of sin, because of their lifestyle. The other one, untouchable because of self-righteousness. One, untouchable because of unrighteousness. One, untouchable because of self-righteousness. One story, two people, only one of them is transformed. And I want to say, right as I begin again, I want to remind you that when I preach, I don't preach to, for education. It's not to be educational. Now, of course, I don't want you to be biblically illiterate. My hope would be that you're learning and you're in God's word, and so you are learning along the way. But when I preach, I don't preach for, edu- for the sake of being educational. I preach for transformation, transformational. And what's interesting in this story, two different people have an encounter with Jesus. Only one walks away transformed. Here's the story in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner." So in our story, both people are untouchable. The woman, untouchable because of her sin, untouchable because of of her sinfulness. The Pharisee on the other side, untouchable because of his holiness, self-proclaimed holiness. You see, the one, the woman, no one would want to be around because she's dirty and unclean. The Pharisee, you wouldn't want to be around him either because he's so holy, he's so clean. And certainly, you have to be very careful in his presence by your own stature, also untouchable because of his arrogance. You see, if we know anything about the Pharisees as we look in biblical history, we find that he would be one of those that had lost their ability to be touched by human sadness, by human brokenness. He didn't see people for who they were. He saw them for what they did. He didn't see them for what they might need. He saw them by the mistakes that they had made. And so completely untouchable with human emotion in that context. 
Now, the Pharisees, as you might recall in some of our dialogues, the Pharisees themselves would be, of course, very religious people. They'd be religious leaders. They'd be the highest leadership um, in, in the Jewish system at that point in the local synagogue. He'd be the, one of the highest leaders that there could, would be. But also, they were typically very adequately cared for. They had means. They had ability. They had homes. They had wealth. They had prestige. They had all the status. They had all of those things. And he invites Jesus to come for dinner. Now, this dinner is not a dinner like you and I might have where we're having dinner and we see Jesus in the grocery store and we say, hey, you ought to stop by for dinner tonight. Not that kind of dinner. In fact, this dinner would be very intentional. He was invited to be at dinner, and it would not be a friendly invitation. It would not be the kind that we would give, but a very specific invitation for Jesus to come and to join him, and typically join him and other Pharisees, other leaders, to join them for a meal. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't like his teaching. It's still early on in the process, so they're not exactly sure who he is. They're trying to figure, figure out who he is. They're trying to get more on him. And in fact, every time they met with him, they're trying to trap him, catch him, uh, something, you know, find some fault with him. And so they invite him to dinner, and this is not an enjoyable, fun dinner. This would be a dinner where they would kind of put it to him. And that was kind of the dinners they would have. They would have these kind of gatherings where there'd be a debate over the dinner table, and people were invited typically to come. And and not just eat, but others to come and watch and to listen. Now, into this dinner engagement comes this woman, certainly not invited. She would not have been invited, an invited guest, and she wouldn't have been wanted either. Neither one would fit that picture. Now, we know little to nothing what's interesting about this woman. We know little to nothing about her. We don't know her name. We don't know her age. We know nothing about her look. We don't know where she lives. We don't know her family. We don't know her story, her nationality, languages she might speak. We know absolutely nothing about her. All we know is that she has somehow lived a sinful life. That's all that we know. That's the only description we have. She is defined by her sinfulness. She's defined by the life that she lives, which was determined to be a sinful life. She's defined by her sinfulness. She's about to be defined by forgiveness. It's an incredible story. Quite interesting in the story. Now, just think about this. This woman in the story does not say one single word that we have recorded. She says nothing in the story, and yet she speaks with profound power. But she says nothing along the way. Bible commentators will tell you this. If you look it up and say, well, who is this woman? They will tell you that she's a prostitute, a harlot. And they would say that she was a prostitute and she was a wealthy prostitute. You say, well, how do we get wealthy out of that? Well, we get wealthy by what she brought with her to the dinner party. It says that she brought with her an alabaster jar and it was full of perfume. That alone would tell her her worth and that she was pretty successful because that perfume, if you were the average worker in that day, not, not the above average, not low, you know, a, a lower class worker, but just the average worker, it would take you a full year's salary to buy that perfume. So they would look and they would think, you know, business has been good. And so what's interesting that wealthy piece comes into the story, a year's wages, and so her story would read this. If we were to translate it to modern word, it would say this. When a prostitute heard that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. But the problem is, the text doesn't say that she's a Pharisee. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say it at all. 
In fact, what's interesting is the Bible does not tell us what her sin was. The Bible never identifies what her sin was. No juicy details of her life, the kind of things that we kind of liken to know in our storylines. We kind of like to know, what exactly is she guilty of? People always want to fill in the blanks, right? When you hear the story about someone, we always want to kind of play the CSI part of the story. We want to, we're not happy with just what we know. We want to know the, the details, what isn't known. And when a prostitute who had a lot of dirty money heard that Jesus was teaching, or when the town thief had showed up at the dinner party, when the crooked businesswoman of town showed up, or when the town drunk or the town addict had heard that Jesus was going to be there. See, we kind of like the descriptive details that fill in the color of the picture, if you will. But the point is, the Bible very deliberately does not identify what her sin is. But for the sake of argument... And seeing that all these commentators, you know, are against me, we'll just go with it. She's a prostitute. So we'll stick with that. So she's a prostitute. So let's go with that story. A high-priced call girl to the rich and famous shows up at a dinner party. Now, if that's true, the question would be as a starting place, what's a prostitute doing at a church dinner party for the elders of the church? It kind of makes you stop right away and say, now hold on here in the story. If that's true, what is she doing there? Um, Close enough, in fact, to be close enough to the table and to actually touch and engage with the, uh, the questions that are taking place, the dialogue that's taking place, and actually being close enough to the guest of honor. Now, we've talked about this before, these types of dinners, and so I'll just touch on it very quickly, but the Pharisees typically had huge homes, and with these homes, usually a big courtyard, and the courtyard was used for this kind of dialogue or dinner to take place. It was a place where they'd have debates, theological debates, and where people could come in and listen in on the dialogue that was taking place. It was typically done in a courtyard area where the people that were invited to dinner could come and eat dinner, but all sorts of other people would come. They would not be invited to dinner, but they would be able to come and stand around and gather around while dinner was taking place and to listen into the conversation because the dialogue would take place over the dinner time. But let's go a little deeper. This woman has a reputation. In fact, she has a bad reputation. She has a sinful reputation. She is known in town for being a sinful woman. Everyone knows that she is, she's got some background and that she was considered unclean and dirty and sinful. So here's the question that I, I begin to think about when I begin to stand back and look at the picture. How is it that she made her way past all the people she'd have to get past to get in to this dinner? Because don't forget, it wouldn't just like be an open door. Uh, When you walked in, if you walked into the door, there'd be someone there because, number one, there were invited guests that were invited to come and eat, and there was a whole protocol that you would go through. If you were an invited guest, you'd be taken to another place, you'd have your feet washed, you'd be anointed with oil, a sign of cleansing, you'd be given a kiss, a holy kiss before dinner. So there was a process, so someone would be there, and then quite honestly, it wouldn't be just a free-for-all, just come in as you will. There'd be all sorts of people. So how does she get by the guy, the bouncer at the front door? How does she get by, not just the front door, but how does she make her way past all of the servants, all of the workers, all the security people, past all of the other Pharisees, all of the other religious leaders, and on top of that, she gets past all of them to the place where she's in the front row VIP seats. 
The best seat she could have. I remember years ago, um, during the, one of the presidential election years, when, when George Bush was running for president, and uh, he, was, he made a trip to Williston, and I just wanted to go hear him in person. I thought, ah, I'm just going to pick up and go. I just got in the car and drove to Williston Fire Department. And I had no ticket. I had no way in. I'm saying, you know, silly me. I'm thinking, you know, you got a politician comes to town. Let's just go see him. I get there. I find out it's ticketed only. It's been ticketed for months. You can't get in. And I stood there kind of debating what to do. It's raining outside. I'm standing next to a woman. She's got like three little children. And it's, it's, a, it's raining. And she's kind of balancing things. And so I just say to her, can I help you? And so I take her umbrella and I hold the umbrella for her and we're chatting a little bit and she's got to see one of the kids going kind of crazy. I said, listen, I know you don't know me. I said, but I got kids of my own. Let me just help you somehow. She's, oh, that'd be great. So I'm helping her do some things and, you know, get the kids settled or whatever. And she, and she says to me, she said, so you're here to hear the, the speech here, the, the, the president? And I said, well, I, I am. I said, but I don't have a ticket. And she just said, oh, I got a ticket. I said, well, I mean, you know, it would be for yourself. Oh, I got extra tickets. Here, here's a ticket. I said, oh, okay. Well, she's a fireman's wife. And you know what? Not only did she have a ticket, she had the good tickets. And so as it turns out, we go through all the security. We get checked forward and backward. Next thing, I'm ushered aside way. Next thing you know, I'm front and center. I mean, I'm, I'm as close as I can be. I'm going, hey, look at me. And of course, the whole time I got this little three-year-old hanging onto my leg, but it's okay. It's okay. How is it that this woman who's got a known history, known reputation, how is it that she gets through all of these people? And don't forget, she's not just some helpful little pastor guy. She's got a bad story. And she's in the VIP section. I begin to think, well, maybe they know her. Maybe there's some clients of hers who are working the front door. Maybe there's some people that knew her and knew her all too well, and so let's just be quiet here, just let her in and let things go. Maybe she'll start making a scene. Let's not do that. Why, how is it that she got there? How did she get to be standing right behind the guest of honor of the entire night? Now think about her coming into that place, a known sinner in the middle of all the known saints. Just think about that for just a moment. The people that would be around that table would be the holiest people in town, and here she comes, the dirtiest person in town. How does she get there? Now, we're about to see and we're about to learn some of some very specific things that we see in her because I want to give you a statement here. This woman is not a follower of Jesus. She had heard that Jesus would be there, and she's intrigued, and maybe she had heard him, maybe she heard of him, of course, but this woman is not a follower of Jesus, and what's interesting, though, is that she comes, and if you stand back and look at the story, she comes and she worships Jesus. Without saying a word, she is a worshiper. And there are some lessons for us as I look at her story. There are some lessons that I need to remember about how to worship Jesus. Worship Jesus from a person who doesn't have a Jesus history, doesn't have a church history, not a trained worship leader, not a trained worshiper, has not been to a night of worship. And yet I see in her some incredible things. Notice a couple things about what we see in her that I would suggest to you are great things to take with you when you worship God. First thing is she worships him boldly, boldly. Think about this. She could have been sent away at the door. 
Now just think about this. She could have gotten the door, got to the door, and they say, what are you doing here? We will not have you here. But on top of that, she could have been found out at any given time during the night and been hauled out in front of everyone. At any given point, she could have been removed. She could actually be stoned because of her reputation and her background and being there. But on top of that, she's there and she's behind Jesus and she's sobbing. We're not talking about someone who quietly slips in and is trying to blend in. Have you ever been around someone just sobbing uncontrollably? It's, it's not quiet. It's not subtle. It's not hidden. She boldly comes, she makes her way, and there she stands right by Jesus' feet. And on top of all of that, not only could she have been rejected along the way, but think about this. She could have, in that moment, when Jesus looks back and looks at her, he he could have looked at her and said, oh, what are you doing here? And he could have rejected her. Now we say, well, he wouldn't have done that, but you don't know that if you're her. So my point being is there's all sorts of obstacles that she had to go through. At any given moment, she could be rejected, and yet here she comes. She comes boldly. It's a big risk. And the story tells us that she had heard that Jesus was going to be there. Why was she there? Well, all we know that she's there is because she heard Jesus was going to be there. That's all that we have. We can't go beyond that. Planning on worshiping him. It wasn't a worship service. Uh, She didn't go necessarily to worship him. Maybe she went hoping to find some acceptance. Maybe hoping for some forgiveness. Maybe maybe coming to give homage and to give an offering because she's heard things about him and said, man, he's worthy of something. Let me go hear him. And how about you? What are your thoughts on your first encounter with Jesus? Just think about that. When you first met Jesus, was it because you were seeking him out to worship him? For most of us, I would suggest not. For most of us, I would suggest that maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe that's how it happened. But for those of us who didn't grow up in the church, I would suggest that most of us didn't come running to hear hear something about Jesus deliberately. Kind of took you by surprise. You saw somebody. You heard somebody. You saw something that caught your attention that said, hey, what is that I heard? What's this feeling that I have? What was your first encounter like? What were you looking for? What were you hoping for when you began to take a little closer look and to hear that maybe he had something to offer? What is it that you were hoping that he would offer you? Maybe hoping to find forgiveness or grace or acceptance or peace or something. She comes boldly. But I'll also suggest to you that even with her boldness to walk in the door, she came very humbly. She stands behind Jesus weeping. She's listening to the conversation, and I'm guessing that in the middle of the conversation, Jesus isn't saying some really nice sermon to her. I mean, he's in theological debate, but whatever she's hearing, she begins to weep. She weeps so hard that she begins, the tears run down her face and begin to soak his feet. I mean, let me just say, this is a spectacle moment. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you're emotionally overwhelmed with something in public? What do you do? you get out of the public, right? That's what we do. We're going to cry. We don't want to cry. We have an emotional breakdown. We don't want to have that. We excuse ourselves. We go some quiet place. We find a bedroom. We find a bathroom. We go out. We go somewhere where no one can see us. Man, she is right there for the world to see. That's about as deeply humble as you can be to stand there in front of the world and to sob uncontrollably with tears running down your face. 
All other holy men wouldn't allow this woman to be even in the same building with her, let alone touch her. And here she stands next to Jesus. Here is the real holy man. Here's the holiest man who's ever walked the face of this earth. Perfect and sinless. Allowing this sinful woman not just to be close, but her tears on his feet and then actually to touch his feet. It's a profound picture of humbleness. When you think about this, they didn't wash Jesus' feet when he came in, and here she is on her knees kissing his dirty feet. I got news for you. It doesn't get much more humbling than that. She came humbly, but I'd also say she came very honestly. We get this picture from this. She brings with her this alabaster jar of perfume. I just need to make sure you understand that this jar represents her life. This jar of perfume is one of the tools of her trade. This jar represents who she is. It's what she does. It represents her sin. It represents her failure. It represents her lifestyle. It represents her work. It represents her past. It represents her confession. This little jar represents her. She brings what she has. She brings who she is. With nothing else, she just walks in to Jesus. No false pretense. She worships him about as honestly as she could. Now, I'd also see a fourth one, and that is she worshiped him with, with extravagance. I mean, again, this little jar of perfume was no cheap thing. I mean, a full year's wages. It says that she took the jar, and she didn't just use a couple of drops, which she could have. She could have taken her hair and dipped it in the perfume and wiped her feet, his feet. She could have put her finger in the perfume and, and put it on his feet. She had a lot of options, but it says that she takes the jar, and she pours the contents out over the feet of Jesus, and the whole house would have filled with the aroma of that perfume. I say the word aroma depending on who you are. I don't like smells like that. So it wouldn't be an aroma to me. Do any of you feel that way? You know, when I am having a cold or whatever, and none of you, one of you wonderful people here will say, hey, have you tried the oil of eucalyptus? Nope, I haven't. I don't want it. You know, lavender, you know, one more person tries to sell me on lavender. And, and I appreciate it, but those smells, I just, uh, I was like, oh, it's intolerable for me. I can't stand those smells. So I'm thinking this is not maybe the best thing in my eyes. Whenever I lead trips, I took Israel, Germany, whatever, to, to, came back from this Germany trip, I always have rules. So when you get on the bus, if you ever go on a trip with me, uh, you'll get on and I have rules. That I have a sheet of rules. The Germany trip, I had 27 rules, I believe 27, maybe 29. Um, and so some of you roll in your eyes. Rules are our friends. Don't forget that. Rules make your life and my life better. And rule number one is always the same. Uh, Scott G. Slocum is in charge. Uh, rule number two is always the same. Scott G. Slocum will always be in charge. Uh, rule number three is you will never be in charge. <laughs> so the, the first three are really simple. But people laugh a little bit about them, but there's a couple of rules, and, and I put it in humor, but there's some rules that are, that are there. And one of the rules is this. If you're one of those people that wear perfume or aftershave, don't. Why? Have you ever been on a bus with someone who just drenched themselves in perfume? The whole bus smells. Worse yet, they say good morning and they hug you, and now you carry it as well. See, I got to give you this picture. In this moment, she pours out this perfume, and you need to know that at that moment, the whole place smells of this perfume. This is extravagance. 
This is humility. This is bold. This is all these things wrapped together. And when she's pouring it out, everyone would have noticed the smell alone, and they would have watched saying, what on earth is she doing? Does she not know what that's worth? Now, here's the point that I just make with this extravagance piece. Think about this. That jar of perfume cost her one year's wages. Now, don't answer out loud. How much do you make a year? 40, 50, 60, 80, 100, 200,000? How much do you make a year? Let me just post this out there. When's the last time in your life you took the equivalent of one year's wages and just took it and said, I'm going to give it to God? When's the last time you took a whole year's wages and just said, I was going to buy this in the church. Hey, just take it and don't worry about it. Now it gets a different perspective, doesn't it? Now we look at her and we go, wait a minute, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money because it's yours. It was a lot of money because it was hers. And she does so extravagantly. The point is this. She doesn't get all the details of who Jesus is. She doesn't understand all the details of he's the Messiah, where he came from. But she gets that this is a moment and she needs to worship him. There's something about him. She hasn't, made, she hasn't made some confession of her faith. She hasn't made some confession of her sin. None of that. She doesn't come clean. She hasn't made some public confession saying, I want everyone to know here I renounce my, my lifestyle and ask for forgiveness. She doesn't do any of that. She just worships him. Do you know that you can just come and worship Jesus with all the, all the other baggage? That's what she does. She just worships him. You see, God doesn't tell you to clean up your act before you can come to worship. You know who does that? Churches do that. Churches with bad teachings do that. Pharisees do that. Christians who don't understand grace, they teach that. God says, come and worship me, and I'll take care of the cleanup. You just start by worshiping me. You come. Worship me as you are. You come Boldly, come humbly, come honestly, come with extravagance. She just brought what she had, and she pours out her worship. He would say to you, come, and just pour out your worship to me, and I'll start the transformation for you. You start the worship, I'll start the transformation. You start the worship, and let the transformation of your life begin. Now, the Pharisees would say, You can't come until you're good and you're clean, and you can't come until you've made a vow that says you're going to seek to do better. Listen, God doesn't ask you to make promises that you can't keep. Isn't that that gracious of God? God doesn't say, okay, you want to worship me, that's great, but raise your right hand. You're going to make a vow that to the best of your ability, you are never going to sin again. He doesn't ask you to make promises you can't keep. He just asks you to come and to worship. Now back to our story. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw this woman and the weeping and the the perfume and all that, when he saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So they think that they found a fault with Jesus. Don't forget, they're looking for his faults anyway. So here's what they found. And you got it in the wording. He says this. Well, maybe he was a prophet, but if he's a prophet, then he'd know better than this. So they, they think they got him. They think they found a fault in him. You know, if he was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this was. Now, let me ask you the question. So what kind of woman is she? 
What kind of woman is this woman? See, it really depends on perspective, right? If you're the Pharisee, she's a sinner deserving judgment. Unclean, needs judgment. If you're Jesus, she's a worshiper needing forgiveness. And if you're a woman, if you're the woman in the story, you're just broken and you just want, you just want a new beginning. You just want grace. See, it all depends on, on your perspective. So Jesus responds in the moment, verse 40. He responds to Simon. Um, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. So two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Now, what's interesting, if you go back in the previous verse 39, it says that Simon said to himself, and yet Jesus is answering to Simon. Let me ask you a question. You ever talk to yourself? Yeah, every day, every day. I mean, sometimes it's a great conversation. Sometimes a boring conversation. You even stop talking to yourself. But the truth of it is, we do, we do that. But then, have you ever been around people that actually talk to themselves, but they deliberately talk out loud because they want you to hear them? Uh, it, it's just one of those annoying things to me. The people that just, just talk, whatever. We sat in a, in a, a number of years ago, we sat at a, at a football game with a woman sat in front of us. We knew her, knew the family. But this is a woman that the entire game talked to herself, but talked out loud so that everyone heard everything that she said. And after a while, you just go and say, this is just driving me nuts. The story says that Simon said this to himself. And yet apparently, uh, everyone's well aware of what he's saying because he's saying it so people can hear it. So Jesus tells a story. The point of which is that love and forgiveness go hand in hand. How much you love tied together with how much you're forgiven. And notice in the story, one owes 500 denarii, the other 50, and yet neither one can pay. So here's the key piece for us, first of all. It doesn't matter how big the debt, neither one can pay the debt. I mean, that's the real key. It doesn't matter if you're $5 million in debt or $50 in debt. The key part of the story is neither one can repay the debt. That's real key. Neither can pay. And I would say, regardless of the debt I owe to God, regardless of the debt you owe to Jesus, none of us can pay. You see, we have this oddity about us that we tend to look at other people and look at their failures and think, wow, have they got a debt to pay and not as great as my debt. But the truth of it is, none of us can pay the debt. None of us can pay the debt that we owe God for the sin in our lives. No matter how big or how small, we think that our debt to God is, is not as bad as others. But we still can't pay it. And then it continues, verse 44. And then he turned toward the woman. Now, here's where it gets really good. Then he turns towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Question, how much have you been forgiven? How much have you been forgiven? 
Well, well, let's look at your love for God. That's what Jesus would say. If you want to know how much you've been forgiven, just look how much you love him. You see, neither the woman or the Pharisee could pay their debt. The Pharisee was counting on his goodness. The Pharisee would say, hey, listen, you know, yeah, I got I to pay, but look, I've been paying it back, and look how well I live my life. This woman has absolutely nothing that she can say, well, look how well I've lived. All she has is the hope of grace. It's all she's got. The Pharisee's got a checklist of things that he does and keeps and reads and the services he attends. This woman has nothing but, oh, by the grace of God. Now, in the story, Jesus does something incredibly interesting. We just read about it. You might have missed it. Or if you remember the sermon, you might remember it. The text tells us that, when, and if we look historically, when these kind of dinners would take place, if I'm the Pharisee, if I'm Simon, I'd invite Jesus, and I would have Jesus sit directly across from me. So let's say, if I'm Jesus, here I stand, here I sit, and here I recline at a table, and right directly across from me would be the host, and I'd be the guest of honor. It would not be side to side. We'd be across from each other because this is the place of debate, theological dialogue. And don't forget, no chairs. We've talked about this before. No, cha- no, no chairs, if you will, no stools, and no tables, if you will. The table would be anywhere from four to eight inches off the ground. And depending on the size, number of people would be how big the table would be, a big square table. And, of course, you'd recline. Why, did, why not chairs? Because chairs were an expensive luxury that you just didn't have. I mean, you might sit on a rock, you might sit on a log, but the bottom line is you recline. There'd be mats on the ground, and we've talked about this before. If I'm at the table, the table's quite large, and I would literally get down on my stomach, on my side, resting on my knee, and I would eat with one hand. I gotta tell you, it's a, it's a great picture of how to eat. Stretched out and rolled out, put a TV on the other side. Man, this is the epitome of a good, of a good dinner. That's how they would eat. So that's the picture. And directly across from Jesus would be Simon. Now, so now make sure you get this. So she, the woman, is where? If I'm reclining at the table with my elbow down, she's back behind me. That makes sense. I'm reclining. My feet are back because I'm kind of stretched out. So that's how, it, she, that's how she'd be crying, and the water would be getting onto my feet. So she's directly behind Jesus. And in fact, in the st- as the thing proceeds, she's actually kneeling down by his feet, and then she's down kissing his feet and putting oil on his feet. Now, Jesus in the story turns and faces her. Now, in most settings, the host would be said directly across from the guest. So catch this. For Jesus to turn and face the woman, he would be placing his back to the host. So if I turn to her, Simon is now directly behind me. I'm turning my back to Simon so that I am facing her. That's the picture I need you to get. He has taken himself, who's reclining. Everyone can see this scene. But in that moment, Jesus actually stands and turns, or at least turns, and he puts himself between Simon, who, by the way, if you want to give a title, Simon the accuser. That's what he's doing. He's accusing this woman of sinful life. He puts himself between the accuser and between the woman. So the answer to the question that Jesus asks Simon the answer he would have to give would be no. He said, what's the question? He said this to Simon. He said, do you see this woman? And if Simon is going to answer correctly at that point, he has turned the woman's in front of Jesus. Simon is back there. And the correct answer would be no. 
I cannot see this woman. Why? Because you're blocking my view. Jesus has his back to Simon. He turns his back to the Pharisee, and he turns his face to the sinner. Interesting thing. One of the truths the Bible teaches over and over again is that God opposes the proud, and he turns his face and his grace towards the sinner, towards the humble. What a great picture. He opposes the proud. Jesus said, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? Simon, do you get it? Do you see what's happening here? Do you understand what's going on here in this moment? Do you see a woman or do you see a prostitute? Simon, do you see a failure or do you see a possibility? Simon, do you see this woman? And the answer is no. Simon has never seen this woman. Simon has never seen who she was. He has only seen what she has done. Simon has never seen the person that she was. She has only seen the reputation that she had. That's all that he knew of her. He has only ever seen her history. Simon saw her past. Jesus sees her future. And make sure you get this. In order for Simon to see that woman, he has to see her through Jesus. Friends, the day that you give your life to Jesus Christ, Jesus intercedes between you and the Heavenly Father, who is the righteous judge. He's not judgmental, he's holy, which means all sin is exposed in his glory. And yet what Jesus does is Jesus puts himself between us and between God so that when God looks at you, what does he see? Jesus. What a great picture. Take your past. Take your history. Take all your sin. Take all your mistakes. Take all your errors. Take all the things that you regret in this life. And when God sees you, he sees Jesus. It's a great picture. That's what he sees. In order for Simon to see that woman, he has to see her through Jesus. The accuser has to look through the forgiver. The one who would remind her of her terrible past has to get through the one who holds the future, her incredible future. Her judge only sees Jesus, and so does yours. As I said, the Bible tells us that, Jesus, that God is the righteous judge. The Bible tells us that one day, it doesn't matter who you are, every one of us is going to stand before that judge and give an account for your life. They said God is not judgmental. He's just holy. And when you're holy, sin has to be accounted for. And here's the picture. And when we are in Jesus Christ, when we stand before the judge, all the judge sees is Jesus. What a great picture. He doesn't see your past, not your failures. He doesn't even see the secret sin that you're sure nobody knows about. Oh, he knows about it. That's not what he sees. He sees Jesus. So Jesus is saying to Simon, so Simon, in light of everything that I just told you about love and about forgiveness and being forgiven much, Simon, how loving are you? And then he says this to Simon. See, Simon, when I came to your home, 
you didn't greet me the way that you would normally greet a guest. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't give me a holy kiss. But this woman, she has done all of these things. So Simon, how loving are you exactly? See, Jesus is now comparing, catch this beautiful piece of the picture. Jesus is now comparing one of the spiritual leaders in the area to one of the most sinful people in the area, and the spiritual leader is coming up short. And the sinful is coming up on the side of grace. Jesus has turned his back on the arrogant religious, the power brokers, holier than thou's, the people who have a bit of an arrogance because of how they live their lives so much better than anybody else. Jesus says, nope, it's none of that. It's all about grace. And he has turned not only his face, but he's turned his favor to the broken, to the hurt, to the discouraged, to all those with a past. He turns his favor to those who are willing to worship him. And then the story ends in verse 48. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that he even forgives sins? And then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman just worshiped Jesus. No confession, no altar call, no public renouncing of sin. She just worshiped Jesus Christ, and she was transformed. So here's my question for you. Who do you relate to best in the story? Who do you relate to best? might be hard to admit it, but I think some of us might relate best to the Pharisees. I mean, let's be honest. Search your heart. Don't you see that we tend to have a kind of a tendency to see other people by light of their failure? Isn't it interesting about us? We don't tend to see them in light of, of their future. We don't tend to see in light of them of the new them. We tend to see them in light of their failure. Oh, yeah, you know what happened to them? Oh, yeah, they were, they were so big in the church, and then this took place or that took place. I mean, I confess, that's what I do. And I hate it about me. In fact, I would even say there are some Christians I talk to that I really don't get because not only do they see people in light of their failures, it's almost like they wait for failure. They almost like they watch to see Christians fail. They watch to see the TV preachers have some public fallings. They see, told you. Some of us can relate to the Pharisee. Maybe some of us even watch people to try to catch them in the wrong in that moment. I asked the worship team to come out. Remember I told you that I would tell you in a moment why it is the Bible doesn't tell us what her sin was? So I'm going to tell you why. Do you know why the Bible, you know why God doesn't tell you what her sin is? It's because it's none of your business. It's that simple. It's none of your business. You see, make sure you understand this about how God works. God doesn't rub our noses in our past failures. Pharisees do that. God doesn't announce and broadcast our failures and our shortcomings to the world. Pharisees do that. Not only Pharisees, but some bad churches with bad theology and some bad spiritual leaders. Notice that Jesus, throughout the story, never references this woman as a sinful woman. I mean, let's be honest, sinful woman, that'd be all of us, Right? We'd all be identified by, if we could see the real us, we'd all be identified by our sinful nature. You know, never calls, calls out her sin. Pharisees do that. You see, she didn't need a sermon. She needed a second chance. She didn't need accusing. She needed releasing. She didn't need a correct, correct, correctional moment. She just needed forgiveness. 
Do you see any Pharisee in you? Be honest. Do you see any of this woman in you? I do. Do you see any of Jesus in you? So how does this story make you feel? I'll tell you how it makes me feel. When I read the story and I get the whole picture, I just want to worship him. I just want to worship the one who looks at me, who does not see my failure, sees my new beginnings. I just want to worship the one that has put himself between me and the righteous judge so that when God sees me, he just sees Jesus. So stand together and let's worship. Then I'll come back and I'll close. We're going to sing, won't stop now. Start with, I give you glory. Here we go. I give you glory for all you've brought me through. And now I'm ready for whatever you want to do. Moving forward. I'm moving forward to follow after you. And now I'm ready for whatever you want to do. Oh, your presence is in open door. We want you, Lord, like never before. Oh, your presence is in We sing your presence, sing it out. Your presence is in open door. We want you, Lord, like never before. Like never before. Sing it out. Your presence is in open door. So come now, Lord, like never I would ask, let this be your breakthrough. As we're going to sing this bridge a few times, catch on, sing it along. We know that breakthrough is coming for every one of us, so sing it out. And I know a breakthrough is coming, and by faith I see a miracle.
loud and proud. And I know the breakthrough is coming by faith. And I see a miracle. My God made me promise and it won't stop now. Let's sing that chorus one more time. Your presence is in open door. We want you, Lord, like never before. Oh, your presence is in open door. So come now, Lord, like never. So look at me for a final couple of words. Number one, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I don't quite fully get that. Why wouldn't you like to take all of your past and hand it off to the one who gives you a new beginning? Uh, God looks at you and he sees his son, Jesus. I would just encourage you again, if you've never done that, place your faith in Jesus. I would also say that for some of you who are followers of Jesus, please be encouraged with the fact that the father looks at you and sees his son. For some of you who've got some past, you've got some things that you regret, and I would just say, just, just get rid of those things. Let Jesus take them. But I felt constrained to say this in the first service and feel that same sense. Some of, some of us here have come to the church. You've come from other churches. Where quite honestly, in some of those churches, you've been spiritually abused. Where you have been in some bad theology, bad teaching, where some religious people, some other Christians have judged you and made you feel guilty and have put judgment upon you. I just need you to know that's not Jesus. That is not how he operates. That's not how we operate. First, I would say, if you've come from another church background where that's been your experience, a, a spirit of judgmentalism, on behalf of, of church leadership, I want to say I'm so sorry because that is not the record of grace. And I say to you, come and be free in Jesus Christ. I end our service the way that Jesus ended this story in this dialogue with this woman. He said, listen, your, friend, your sins are forgiven. Be free. And then he says this, go and go in peace. Go in peace. God bless you. Have a great day.